0: If you have your bibles would you turn with me to Psalm 19 Psalm 19 William Beebe was one of the most well-known naturalists of the first half of the 20th century and he liked to tell this story of President Teddy Roosevelt who was his close friend. They both had a love of nature. And so on occasion, they would go out on expeditions. And on one such occasion, in the evening, Teddy Roosevelt went out and they searched the lower left-hand corner of the sky for the great square of Pegasus. And then the president said, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. And then Roosevelt grinned and said, now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. The glories of the heavens do indeed put man in his place. Have you ever been far away from light pollution and be able to truly witness the glory of the heavens on a clear night? I have. When I was a child, for four years, my parents were missionaries to Papua New Guinea, and we ministered in the highlands. Our house was about 8,000 feet above sea level and the atmosphere was thin and at night and there were very very few electric lights in that part of the world and so at night you could see spectacular displays of the heavens I can remember going out and lying down on a bench and just looking up for long periods of time I suspect that David had a similar experience as a shepherd boy in Israel as he would watch over his father's flock and admire the heavens. And as a mature man, David reflects back on those peaceful nights and says with praise in his heart, the heavens declare the glory of God. I want us to consider this morning that beloved psalm. Several weeks ago, I preached through Psalm 32, and I mentioned then that that wasn't my normal way of doing things. I like to cover incredibly thoroughly a very brief portion, but I stretched myself to cover a whole psalm. I'm going to try to do that again today, although there is much that I have to leave unsaid. Psalm 19 is well known for good reason. It is both beautiful and profound. The literary giant C.S. Lewis considered Psalm 19 to be the greatest book, the greatest poem, excuse me, in the book of Psalms. But Psalm 19 is much more than a poetic masterpiece. It is the most significant passage in the Bible on the revelation of God to man. What is revelation? I'm going to give you a very simple and portable definition. Revelation is simply God making himself known. Everything that you know that's accurate about God is something that he has revealed to you, not something that you came up with on your own. Psalm 19 provides two primary ways that God reveals himself. First of all, God reveals himself in creation. And we're going to see that in the first six verses of this chapter. David specifically mentions God's revelation of himself in the heavens or the sky. But that doesn't mean that only the sky brings glory to God. All of creation does. But perhaps the most prominent and obvious display of God's glory is in the heavens. Theologians refer to God's revelation of himself and creation as general revelation. But starting in verse 7, we encounter another type of revelation. And that is what theologians call special revelation. This is God revealing himself through his word, the Bible. Special revelation provides much more detailed and specific information about God. It is only through the lens of God's word that we can truly make sense of God's glory in creation. So the first half of this psalm deals with general revelation, the second portion with God's special revelation in the word. It is only through the lens of God's word that these things come into sharper focus and we understand God, our great God and the redemption that he has provided through his son. Now what about the last three verses of the psalm? Verses 12 through 14, look at these. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is not revelation. This is man's response to God's revelation. And that's how this psalm concludes. But why has God revealed himself to us? The simple answer is so that we might know him. So I'm going to preach to you this morning on this truth that God has graciously revealed himself to us so that we might know him. So let's begin by looking at how God has revealed himself in the heavens. Look with me, please, at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. This essentially is a proposition for this first half of the psalm. What does it mean? Let me remind you again that the most fundamental aspect of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. That is where two lines follow one after the other and they say essentially the same thing to emphasize one truth. That's what we have many times in this psalm, including in the first verse. Now the heavens that David is speaking of here we would call Space today. It is where the moon, the sun, and the stars reside. The Hebrew word declare is often used elsewhere in the Old Testament in the context of worship. This is why looking to the heavens elicits in the hearts of man a sense of wonder and worship. It's not surprising that in almost every culture in the world, in ancient times, people worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars because they are very prominent and they give us a sense of grandeur and of power and of transcendence. Now what does it mean here by the glory of God? I've spoken on this many times, so I'm going to say this briefly. The Hebrew word for glory originally has the idea of that which is weighty. It conveys the idea of something that is honorable, significant, or important. You see, all of creation is intended to point us to the maker of creation, the great God who made it all. The second line of verse 1 reinforces this truth. The word firmament means expanse and is a reference for the sky. The sky shows God's handiwork. Now when we read handiwork, it doesn't mean that God literally has hands that he made and fashions the planets and the earth with. This is used to to convey the truth that God has created everything directly. We know from Scripture that God spoke and these things came into Existence. So the first thing we discover in this psalm is that God's revelation and creation is glorious. And that is all intended to point to Him. Every flower, every tree, every mountain, every animal, and certainly every person who's made in the image of God, all of it points to the glorious designer and creator of it all. And that is the way that we should see the world. Yes, creation is fallen. Things don't function as they should. We've never seen, no one here has ever witnessed the world as God originally made it. But we see a faint glimpse of it all around us. And it points to our glorious God. Now look with me at verse 2. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. Once again, we see that there are two lines of poetry that are parallel. The first one says, Day unto day uttereth speech. That is that every day is filled with the revelation of God. And when one day ends, guess what? Another one begins right on its heels and there's another day of revelation of God. In the day we have the Son which points us to God, and every night we have the moon, at least most nights we do, and, and stars to remind us of our creator. The Hebrew word uttereth is a fascinating word. It means to bubble up like a spring. The idea is that God's revelation of himself just keeps flowing like a mountain spring. It never dries up. and never starts flowing. It just keeps coming. So the second thing that David is revealing about God's revelation and creation, number one, it's glorious. Number two, it's continual. It doesn't stop. There aren't some days where we say, well, there's no revelation of God today. No, every day, every moment of every day and of every night, there is the revelation of God. Now look with me, starting at verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You might notice in the King James Version, the word there is is in italics because it's not in the Hebrew. The translators have supplied it to make better grammatical sense of it. And indeed it is true. But literally it reads, no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And so here in verse 3, we see the third thing about God's revelation and creation, and that is that it's universal. So far, David's been speaking generally about heaven, but now he's going to be more specific. And what he's saying here is that the boundaries of language and dialects, and we might even say broader culture, do not prohibit or restrict God's revelation of himself. That's true in reference when we come to special revelation because not everybody in the world has the Bible in their language. Not everybody has access to a Bible in the world. That's why we support a number of translators and people like Bethany Boston, who's a literary consultant who helps people learn to read God's special revelation of himself. But things like the glory of the heavens, David is saying, they transcend language. Everyone can see the sun or see the the heavens and the stars and the moon and have a sense of the grandeur and the greatness and the power of God. God's revelation is universal. Now in verse 4, David is going to start focusing on just one object in the sky, and that is the sun. It says in verse 4, their line is going out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And then beginning in that last phrase, and them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. I meant to mention that that first part in verse 4 is just amplifying what we find in verse 3, and that is it's gone to the ends of the earth. There's no nation in the world that says we don't really have a sky. All right? Every place has a sky. All over the globe there is the revelation of God in creation. Now, the last phrase in verse 4 is a transition to the new section where he's going to become more specific in dealing with the sun. Now, David here in the last phrase where he says, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, speaking of the sun going down at night and, and residing in a tent like a person would in the Middle East. Now, let me just say that David did not really think that the sun went to bed in a tent at night. He's using poetic language here. And then in verse 5, we have two beautiful pictures of a sunrise, which is, speaking of the sun, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and secondly, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. Now, the first picture here we have an allusion to the Jewish marriage custom. On the day of the wedding, they didn't go to a church for the wedding. They didn't go to some big banquet hall. They went to the bride's home. And on the wedding day, the idea is the groom would leave to make that procession with his groomsmen and with others to the bride's home. And guess what? His face was beaming. He was happy. This is a joyous occasion. He is going to be wed today. And so he leaves his residence with a smile. It's very interesting that in virtually every culture of the world, people think of the sun as being having a smile on its face. We talk about a person beaming, and we get that. Of course, we talk about sunbeams and rays coming out of it. And that, that's the, the picture here, that uh, like the sun is like a bridegroom who's going to be married. It beams every morning. And then we have a second metaphor for the sun. The sunrise is like a strong man who runs a race. This is a reference to what we would call today an athletic champion who enjoys competing and is completely confident of victory. Look at verse 6. It says, His going forth is from the ends of the heaven, and His circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. It's a circuit. It finishes its race every day. It never quits and never pauses for a break. It just keeps going like a very able runner who goes all the way to the finish line. And we see here that the sun covers all of the earth, it provides light and warmth for all people. So, what does the sun tell us of God's revelation? I would put it this way God's revelation is conspicuous. It's hard to miss. God's revelation is glorious. God's revelation is continual. God's revelation of Himself is universal. And God's revelation of Himself is conspicuous. Bertrand Russell is generally acknowledged to be one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. He was a groundbreaking philosopher, a leading mathematician, and a Nobel Prize-winning writer of literature. He was also a strong antagonist to all forms of religion and a very proud atheist. He was once asked in an interview, if you meet God after you die, what will you say to him to justify your unbelief? He replied, I will tell him that he did not provide enough evidence for his existence. But that is nonsense. God's revelation is glorious, continual, universal, and conspicuous, but it's often ignored. How many people go throughout their day living as if there is no God and when in fact all of creation is shouting, Look unto me! But let me ask a very significant theological question. Is God's general revelation in creation enough for a person to truly know God? The answer biblically is no, it is not. What can a man deduce from observing creation? He can learn that God is powerful, much more powerful than he is. He can learn that God is much older than he is because creation existed long before he did. He can learn that God is orderly because all of creation is made up of complex design. But apart from that, there would be not that many things that would be abundantly clear. According to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, God's revelation and creation is enough to condemn a person, but it's not enough to save a person. In other words, no one is going to be able to come before God on judgment day and say, God, I didn't even know you existed. No Everyone knows deep in their heart that there is a God. That's why the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why does the Bible call that person a fool? Because they are declaring something that deep inside they don't even truly believe. Because everything around them points to a maker. No, in order for a person to truly know God, they must have much more specific information about God. And that brings us to the second half of this psalm that begins in verse 7. <coughs> Look with me, please, at verse 7. Now, there is an abrupt transition between verses 6 and 7, but the implied connection is this. Just as the sun provides light light, and life for all, so the word of God provides light and life for all who believe it and follow it. Now the emphasis in verses 7 through 9 is really the practicality or sufficiency of the word of God in the life of a believer. We have a very regular pattern here. There are six aspects of the Word of God that are brought out in verses 7, 8, and 9. Each of these verses has two of these aspects, and each of these six aspects has a threefold pattern. There's, first of all, a synonym of Scripture, like the law of the Lord, then a description of of Scripture. It's perfect. And then a practical benefit of Scripture, converting the soul. So we have a very regular pattern here. The first thing we see is that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The word perfect has the idea of that which is flawless, complete, and sufficient. When it speaks here of the law of the Lord, I always think of the irony that the only way of freedom for an individual is to follow the law of the Lord's. And then this word converting is a word that speaks of reviving or restoring it can have reference to someone being born again converted and perhaps there is indeed an element here the word of god is the agent in our salvation it shows us how we can have a relationship with god in first peter chapter 1 and verse 23 it says a person is born again by the word of god which lives and abides forever talks of it as a seed That bears fruit. The goodness of the gospel is found in the word of God. This is why we proclaim the word of God here every Sunday. This is why we give out tracts that have the word of God in it. This is why we send missionaries to the ends of the earth to preach the word of God. Because the spirit of God uses the word of God to convert sinners. But the word of God not only converts the sinner, it also restores the child of God who may have fallen away from the Lord or may be experiencing a time of darkness and dryness in their spiritual life. I think David experienced this in the 23rd Psalm. He says this little phrase of the good shepherd, he restoreth my soul. And that word restoreth is the same Hebrew word as converteth here. He has restored my soul. Remember that year when he was away from the Lord, when he was involved in adultery and murder, but God in his grace restored him. And God uses the word of God to restore us and show us the way back to God. Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple Because God's word is reliable and trustworthy, we turn to it for direction in life. It speaks here of the word simple. It's a word that's often found in the book of Proverbs for those who are naive, who don't know how things really work in the world. But there's a sense in which we are all simple. We all are ignorant of what God is doing some of the time. And so we need God's direction and God's guidance. We have all made foolish choices. We have all trusted in our own understanding and have gone the wrong path. And so we need the wisdom of the Word of God. And then we see that the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's Word leads us in a straight path. It helps us avoid so many dangers in life. Therefore, it rejoices our hearts. A true believer is indeed like the blessed man in Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. In its pages, God speaks to us and we commune with him. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What does it mean to enlighten the eyes Well, it can mean different things in different contexts within Scripture. But probably what David has in mind is that the the Word of God encourages us when we are discouraged. It gives us hope. It gives us joy. It opens our eyes and reminds us of who God is and of what He has done for us. And so the word of God is filled with promises about who God is and what he will do for his people. And we as believers, when we go through the storms of life, we are to cling to those promises. And by his grace, we must not let them go. We cling to the promises of God. It is true, it is enduring, and it will not fail us in the storms of life. And then we read that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The Word of God should evoke profound reverence for God. It reveals to us a holy God, a great God, a God to whom we must answer, a God who is just and right, and therefore it should instill in us a healthy fear of living life on our own terms and going astray from him. And therefore, we must rest in him and his truth. And then, finally, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word is always true and right. It is a foundation for our lives. Now, what's the point that David's trying to make in these three verses with this very repetitive refrain about the ministry of the Word of God in our lives. It is that the Word of God is sufficient for whatever difficulty or crisis you might be facing in your life. What do you need today? Do you need encouragement The Word of God is filled with encouragement. Do you need direction? The Word of God will guide you. Do you need strength? The Word of God will give you strength. The Word of God has all that we need. It will never mislead you. It will never disappoint you. It will never fail you in the day of adversity. In verse 10, David now goes on to praise the Word of God by comparing it to fine gold and sweet honey. Gold is probably the most common treasure throughout history that people have sought to acquire. We know historically of gold rushes that have changed our nation and changed regions of the world. We have the Klondike Gold Rush. Everyone headed up north to Canada and northern Alaska, that region of the world. We know of the 49er great gold rush in California. How thousands and thousands of Americans left everything behind in the East to go in search of riches because they were convinced that if they went there, they would find gold and it would change their lives. But the greatest treasure is the Word of God. It's so much more valuable than gold. David also compares the word to honey. Most people in the ancient world had very little that was sweet in their diets. Sometimes people are nostalgic about ancient times and they wish they were living in another era. I want you to know that I think you would be profoundly disappointed with the food. You eat better than Pharaoh did. You have refrigeration and you have transportation that brings in food from all over the world and you have access to all kinds of delicacies. People in the ancient world didn't have that and one of the things they could not have imagined is that you have a container somewhere in your kitchen that's probably filled with sugar. They didn't have that. What they used most commonly for a sweetener was honey. And honey is not always easy to acquire. And so it was a delicacy. It was symbolic of fine food. If you had honey on your table, you were doing well because that was expensive. That was a rare treat. And so the common denominator between gold and honey is that they're both valuable They're both sought after. They're both something that people really, really want, but they're hard to get. But those who believe God's Word and let it be a light to their feet and and, and to their path, they have this great treasure in the Word of God. But why is it so valuable? Look at verse 11. He's going to tell you why it's so valuable. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Have you ever thought about how valuable it is, the warnings that you find in Scripture about what you should not do? Sometimes people are put off by this, oh, the Bible's so negative. Ten Commandments are all so negative. Don't do this and don't do that. Do you have any idea of how many problems you avoid in life if you follow God's Word. It will save you so much heartache and difficulty if you do things God's way. Ultimately, it will keep you from the path of destruction. One of the great values of the Word of God is that it warns us. It helps us to see things as they truly are. It is the lens by which we can see reality. How much more valuable is it for God to give you direction and to keep you from making a cataclysmic mistake that would trouble you all of your days? That's much more valuable than gold. It also rewards those obey it this is another reason it's so valuable. the Christian life is indeed the best life to live the world has done a very effective job of convincing people that it's the worst life to live that it's a boring life that it's a life with no joy and no happiness and no excitement that living the way of the world, living as if there is no God to whom you must answer, living for your own appetites and pleasures and for acquiring material things, that that's the way to go. But there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The Christian life is the best life to live. Many people could stand up in our congregation and tell you how the word of God has changed their life. This is who they used to be. And this is who they are today. This is so much more valuable than a ship filled with gold or fine dining for a lifetime. But the ultimate reward in knowing God is that you will live with Him forever. So how do we respond to this God who has revealed Himself both in the skies and in the Scriptures? That brings us to the final question. Verses in this psalm. Look with me now at verses 12 through 14. I want us to see man's proper response to God's revelation. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This psalm ends with a prayer of the psalmist David who is responding to this great God who has created the universe and this great and holy God who has revealed himself in the word of God. Now, there are many proper responses to God's revelation found in Scripture. One of the most common is praise. This is especially evident in reference to God's creation or God's redemption. A vital aspect of worship is praising God. That's why when we gathered here this morning, we sang hymns of praise to express the emotions, the affections, and the thoughts of our hearts. It's appropriate to praise God for all that he has done. But David here reveals another proper response to God's revelation. Have you ever noticed that when individuals in the scriptural narrative have an encounter with God, they react with a profound sense of their own sinfulness? When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And when Ezekiel saw a unique manifestation of the glory of God, he fell down with his face to the ground. And when Peter saw the glory of God and the miraculous catch of fishes, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And when John, the beloved disciple, saw the glory of the risen Lord on the Isle of Patmos, he fell at his feet like a dead man. I think David reveals a similar response in this psalm. In the heavens, David saw the greatness of God. But in the word of God, David saw the holiness of God. You see, the glory of God, when it is truly seen, always humbles a person. And so David pours forth this series of prayers that have this common denominator of a prayer for cleansing. In the presence of this glorious God, he feels sinful, dirty, and unworthy. And so he pours out his heart to God. He begins with this rhetorical question, who can understand his errors? And I think he said this as an agonizing cry. "Who can understand his errors? Just as the sun searches the surface of the earth, so the word of God searches the heart of man. Most people think who think that they are a good person, and that's the way the lost man naturally thinks do so because they are ignorant of how God has revealed himself in his word. If you truly read this book in a believing way, you will see yourself as exceedingly sinful. David was well aware of the sin in his life, but here he is specifically troubled by his secret sins. Those sins that he was even unaware of committing. That's the idea of this term error in verse 12. And that is clarified in the last phrase Cleanse thou me from secret faults. In the Old Testament, they had a differentiation between two categories of sin. There were what we called sins of ignorance. These were sins that were hidden to the individual who committed them or they were unintentional. They still required a sacrifice. They were still sin. But the Bible makes a distinction between the sins of ignorance and sins that it calls sins with a high hand. That is sins that a person does That they know is wrong and they rebelliously continue to engage in that sin. David here is troubled by the reality that no one truly knows the full extent of their sinfulness. Let me just make an extrapolation from this truth for a moment. Sometimes people think that their salvation depends on them confessing all of their sins faithfully and that if they were happened to die without confessing like the last sin they committed they would go to hell I want you to know something I don't care how careful you are you have never confessed all of your sin because there are some sins that you're ignorant about that you have not noted that you have not been convicted of, that you have not thought about, that you think you might be doing something good, but God sees it as sin. So your salvation cannot be resting on the fact that you better, you better con- confess all of your sins or else you're going to go to hell. No. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed you from all sins including those secret faults that are hidden to you. That doesn't mean you shouldn't confess your sins, by the way, because if you do not confess your sins, there will be a breakdown in fellowship between you and God because you have known sin in your life and you're refusing to deal with it. And you will not have that blessed communion that Scripture extols and tells us about. Now look with me at verse 13. David continues with his prayer, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. These are the sins that are done with a high hand. They're presumptuous in this sense. The person is presuming, listen, I know this is wrong. I know God's word condemns us. But I also know that God forgives sins. So I'm going to go ahead and commit this sin, and afterwards I can just always ask God to forgive me, and I can just continue to do that, and everything will be good. God doesn't operate that way. He's not going to be played by you. You can't game the system. To find a way to continue in your sin merrily and go on your way, and rebellion against God, and there not be consequences for that. You might be able to fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. David here is asking God to keep him from presumptuous sins. I think, I think the, the the connection here is this, from what goes before it. If we are asking God to search our hearts, and we are asking God to please Reveal to me those secret sins, those sins of ignorance, those sins that I uh, that I am not aware of, that I have not detected in my heart. Make them known to me that I might confess them and forsake them. If we have that tender heart and we have that spirit, we will never go to the presumptuous sins. But if we don't really want to have that kind of relationship with God and, and, and we are not really trying to, to lay ourselves out before God and say, God, what do I need to to remove from my life? Then we are in danger of going on towards presumptuous sins. That is, sins that are premeditated and are full of willful rebellion. Well, what happens if we continue with our presumptuous sins? Well, that leads to something else. Look at the next thing here. He says in verse 13, Then shall I be innocent from the great transgression. What is David referring to when he speaks of great transgression? The answer is we don't absolutely know for certain. Some scholars suggest that David is referring to to adultery and there is some ancient Jewish rabbinic literature that refers to that as the great transgression and perhaps David wrote this after his sin he says Lord let me never go down that road again that might be the case some others suggest that it's idolatry because the the sin that, that God judged his people for again and again in the Old Testament was the sin of idolatry that brought out his wrath. And indeed, when we set up idols in our heart, it does provoke our jealous God. But I think that what David is suggesting here is ultimately the great transgression of walking away from God. Let me be clear, I do not believe that a true born-again believer can lose their salvation. I believe that we are kept by the power of God. But there are a lot of people who may appear to be a Christian, may be accepted as a Christian by their peers, and yet at the end it may be revealed that they are not truly following the Lord. And sometimes this is known in their lifetime because they will abandon their faith. How does that happen when a person becomes comfortable with their sin and continues to let it go further and further and further and further? They're no longer convicted. They're no longer Upset, they're no longer distraught, they no longer feel the need to ask God to for forgiveness. They've broken through those barricades and those guardrails, they've hardened their heart to the conviction of God's spirits, and they have a heart of unbelief. This is what the writer of Hebrews warns about. And so I think that David's point in these two verses is that we must keep short short accounts with God. That we must ask God to keep us from sin. You see, so often I think that's not the attitude of our hearts. I think so often what we want to do is have God let us have a little bit of sin in our life, our pet sin in our life, and please don't judge me so much for it. But a person who truly knows the Lord and has a healthy relationship with Him, will not want anything between himself and God's because he will want to enjoy that blessed fellowship. And so believing people should, on a regular basis, examine our hearts, confess our sins... And on a daily basis, basis, make sure that we are walking with the Lord and not allowing sin to creep into our hearts and for our hearts to become comfortable and callous to the wickedness that once we would have been shocked at. And so notice how David concludes this beautiful psalm with a model prayer that many believers over the centuries have used to close their prayers or at the end of the day or even at the beginning of the day. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And you'll notice that David doesn't talk anything about our actions. He talks about our thoughts and the affections of our heart. Why is that? Because if our thoughts are right and our heart is right with God, the actions will take care of themselves. But this must be the believer's prayer in reference to the revelation of our holy God. Father, I want to walk in your ways. I want to be as close to you as I possibly can. I want my, the words that are in my mouth and the thoughts of my heart, even those hidden things, to be acceptable to you. This is the cry of a person who has experienced and received God's redeeming revelation. And now I just want to conclude with some brief application. Number one, Christians should see God's glory in all of creation. Born-again believers should every day see the glory of God in creation. It's so easy to go through your day with burdens, with schedules, with pressure on you that you ignore all of God's signposts around you. Everything around you points to the glory of God and we should praise him for that I would also say under this heading that born-again believers can never accept or believe that all that we see is but the result of random material processes over a long period of time. How did such order, beauty, and complex design come out of chaos? How did you come to exist with a heart that longs to know God, it can only be filled to joy with His presence. How did that happen randomly? By chance. You see, evolution is nothing less than an attack on the glory of God. And so every believer should view creation as the handiwork of God. We should see it as His gift to us. And it should prompt us to worship and to praise Secondly, we can only know God through the Word of God. What is the Bible primarily a book about? The Bible is fundamentally a book about God. The heavens show us that there is a great and glorious God, but who is this God? And how can we know Him? And how can we trust in Him? Well, only the Bible can answer these questions. That is why we must be students of the Word and why we must strive to get the Bible into the hands of people around the world. Because the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And third and finally, I would say this, God's ultimate revelation of Himself is found in Christ. Within the pages of Scripture, we have the central figure of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. The Old Testament points through symbols and prophecies and rituals, through biographical personages. It all points to a coming Redeemer. And then in the New Testament, He is revealed. We see Him beyond the sacred page. What every lost person needs is a revelation of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the ultimate word, the ultimate message from God. In Second Corinthians 4.6 it says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can only know the God who has created this world through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said the night before he died, he that has seen me hath seen the Father. Do you want to know the Father? Do you want to know the, God, the great God who has made everything and who has a plan for your life? You can only know him through Jesus Christ. Jesus said just a moment later, in that evening, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Everyone, to some degree, has seen the glory of God and creation. And some of you have experienced the glory of God in His Word. But have you seen the glory of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? It is only those who have seen the glory of Christ who will trust Him and obey. And for those who trust in Him, They will be saved eternally. Let me remind you, the whole point of God's revelation to man is that we might know him. And Jesus said in the upper room, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Salvation Redemption is found only in Christ who died in our place and who rose again and who is coming again. May God help us to find our hope and our trust in him alone. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are God who has not remained silent who has not left us to our own fallen imaginations to conceive of who you are, but that you have given us clear revelation of yourself that we might know you, that we might come to love you and to trust in you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you work in hearts today so that those who are yet hardened through sin might see the light of the Savior, and trust in him alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.